today on Building the Open Metaverse. I think the convergence in some ways is here. I mean, we see a lot of experiences that are um, really straddling the line between linear stories and interactive stories. And I mean, this varies across the board from projects created in Unity. You know, you've seen some of the uh, recent examples with Neil Blomkamp and others. You guys have put out this amazing Matrix experience. But we've also seen truly fantastic stories, like, for example, Angelica from Pixar. There, there's a lot that's happening that takes advantage of um, both the interactivity, but also the, um, you know, the capability of the hardware to create these stories. Welcome to Building the Open Metaverse, where technology experts discuss how the community is building the open metaverse together. Hosted by Patrick Cozy from Cesium and Mark Petit from Epic Games. Welcome to Building the Open Metaverse, the podcast where technologists come and discuss how to create the open metaverse together with the community. My name is Mark Petit from Epic Games, and today I'm on my own as Patrick Cozy uh, from Cesium, my co-host, could not make it today, and we did not want to reschedule this conversation as we have a great guest for you today, someone who is normally quite busy, so we're super happy to have with us uh, Natalia Tatarchuk of Unity. Natalia, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Mark. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to this audience, and I'm excited to have that conversation. Well, thank you. Thanks for being with us. A little bit of your background, you know, you've studied computer science and computer graphics at Harvard and also at Boston University. And you studied as a graphics software architect, you know, in the, in the, at AMD, I guess it was probably ATI back in the day, where I uh, worked a lot on parallel computing uh, and real-time graphics techniques. So it's a, real-time has been a passion of yours for quite some time. Oh, yeah. Um, well, I'll give you a tiny bit about my background. I actually, so I come from an engineering family. Both my mom and my dad were uh, engineers back in Soviet Union. And the memory of my childhood actually was uh, very much focused on um, arcade machines that my dad used to design that are now in the Museum of uh, Computer Games in Moscow. And so I was very lucky to see this from the time when physics was encoded in hardware. And of course, it was all real time. You interacted with, with a joystick. And, um, you know, it's funny that we're here with talking about the metaverse because he was taking a real world game that you, you know, use physical bats to throw and then converted that to be baked into the hardware pieces. And so as a kid, I watched him, you know, design this game and convert it into experiences that people can use with their hands, but also with their minds. Um, and that kind of got me super hooked to the notion of what it means to do real time and to do games and to do interactive experiences. And from then onward, um, the journey kind of moved in the direction of finding uh, the path through how do I help people to create content? Um, so I actually worked on um, 3D haptics, for example. And funny anecdote, this is where I learned the importance of divide by zero. We were an MIT startup that had these gigantic, super heavy uh, steel arms. And when an exception was thrown across multiple threads, um, it generated a divide by zero by the force feedback thread and it would whack you. And so <laughs> real-time responses you have to be really careful about when you process, but it was a fun introduction to how do you combine these you know, um, fully virtual experiences. We were crafting this in virtual space while using a physical device. And so you had to create this connectivity between the imagination of the person who's doing it you know, in air right, to the final result in the computer and create that interface that dynamically gave you that feedback. And it got me completely addicted to the feeling of shaping content and 
creating in the virtual world from that onwards. And then of course, like you mentioned, uh, moving to AMD and ATI allowed me to see how you drive this through the hardware design. Um, how do you think about creating standards? Because a lot of what we were doing in the team is not just focused on creating new techniques and new research, but a critical part of enabling new techniques and new hardware is to create API standards that allow um, you know, a number of different companies to participate in the experience of those features. And that was a really good learning experience for me in particular, because, you know, a lot of times people think about standards of these um, involved committees where people dumb down things to the sort of common denominator. But the importance about standards is actually about creating um, something that people can align on that allows differentiation to go beyond the specific standardization space. And I think this is actually a critical thing that I want to discuss with you when we think about metaverse and creation of interchangeable data format. How do we define these standards that allow that um, specialization to shine as well as interchange and durability? And then, of course, came to the live, um, after that, to the live game of, um, to, the, to the world of games, of live games for Destiny. It's still going, and it's, it tickles my fancy to know that the rendering code I wrote still has a play in, um, you know, millions of people experiencing every day. Um, and that was a tremendous learning experience because, of course, games are some of the more, most complex ecosystems in terms of software um, and creativity combined with the power of constrained computing systems. But it's also interesting to see how people who are creating content and you know in these customizable worlds, in the customizable player experiences, how are they going to create the evolution of that content going forward? And so there are a lot of challenges that I think are unique to live games. And I know you guys um, at Epic have done quite a lot of expertise in that space. And it's a very interesting topic, very much connected to Metaverse, because when I think about that concept, whether it exists or not, and to me, it's a giant life game, right? In the end, um, giant life software and so forth. And from Bungie, what I um, decided to really dig into is how do we enable millions of creators to create effectively? And that's ultimately what drew me to Unity because I felt that the opportunity to make um, the biggest difference to that was here. And so that's where I'm here today. Okay, so tell us what you do. Um... Uh, before I go there, I actually have a personal question. When I was a student in France learning engineering, I could never understand that. Is the textbooks in physics and mathematics was very expensive, except the Russian one from Mir edition. So why was those books so so cheap? And I learned all of my physics and, and, and mathematics from uh, from actually Russian textbooks from the Mir editions. And I, that's the only one I could afford back in the day. So I don't know if it was part of the propaganda or whatever, but it's, this is what I, this is my, my, when you mentioned Soviet Union, I had this flashback about those, those black books, the Mir editions. Anyway, so tell us what you, uh, what you do with, uh, you know, what's your role at Unity now? So you joined Unity in 2017, uh, of course, focus on graphics, so. Yeah, so when I joined, it was actually 2016. When I joined, my focus was, uh, you know, help evolve what we can do with the Unity software for graphics. And we've grown from a tiny team to, a, you know, a tremendously large you know, influence on the world of creators. Um, and much of it has to do with the focus of, on creation, on creative creator workflows, but also enabling scalability. So I ran the product teams for graphics um, and we were a multidisciplinary crew, uh, you know, artists, designers, producers, but of course a slew of engineers ranging from, of course, traditional graphics engineers, but also 
UI coders, tools, machine learning engineers, um, assets, you name it. And a big part of that was a lot of times graphics gets misconstrued as these are the rendering nerds that focus on the algorithms. But it is so critical to build the mindset that really graphics is about how do you author the, you know, the, the source data, the pixels, uh, you know, don't come from the final, you know, RGB representations. They come from somebody thinking through their intent, what it is they are trying to uh, represent. And if you're creating a graphic system, you're creating from end to end, from the authoring to the final representation through the platform journey through the performance and um, you know transformations that are necessary for specific platforms and so much of it has been focused on rethinking you know how do we create end-to-end -end coherent systems since then i've uh, moved to a different role as a distinguished technical fellow and chief architect professional artistry and graphics innovation i also vie for the longest title there's probably one person who can win it but <laughs> no i'm kidding it's an accident of um fate. Uh, what I'm doing right now is, um, you know, effectively looking at how do we rethink, again, content creation tools and ingestion of the results of them. We, you know, you probably have seen some of the recent changes that we've done for, um, you know, bringing Weta and Ziva and Speechry and a few others into um, kind of our uh, teams. And a large part of it is uh, focused on uh, trying to rethink to help it, you know, to make it super easy for people to create content without having to think about, you know, the complexity of how do they manage sending the data through the pipeline? How do they get it to real time? And also to enable people, um, artists to meet them where they are, right? A lot of them spend hundreds of hours training the sort of the muscle memory, right? Like with whether it is with a Wacom tablet or a mouse and keyboard and moving from that muscle memory into some other environment is a painful choice that sometimes, um, you know, quite fractured for a lot of them. So we're focusing on building an ecosystem where we can meet them where they are, but then help them become superheroes by letting them meet the audience that they want to meet, right? Like if they want to meet it on millions of mobile devices, Fantastic. We don't want to dictate where they want to see that audience. And I think that is a critical part of building the connected systems for, um, you know, again, those giant live games or giant experiences, because we won't know where the audiences will come to us when we're creating a particular experience. And the more flexibility we can have as a creator to where we can actually meet people who consume our creation, the more we create shareable experiences. And so right now we're focused on, um, you know, building the, um, the service ecosystem for that. And then of course, moving the field forward for graphics innovation and what real time and graphics in general can do. Fascinating. So before we talk more about uh, the convergence of movies and games, you know, I, I want to call out that for the past 15 years, since 2006, you've been uh, at the helm of one of the, you know, most important courses in graphics for real time called advances in real time rendering and 3D graphics and games. And I just want to call out, you know, all of your, your leadership uh, through the past 15 years. That's a lot of time, 15 years. You, 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 you know, when you get your mind to something, you don't give up, right? <laughs> Not really. Yeah, no, um, it's, it's been an honor to have SIGGRAPH supported for this many years. And I have to call out huge thanks to, you know, 15 years worth of cha uh, chairs and organizing community. And a big part of also the success is you're right. I don't give up. And when, um, when I'm lucky to not give up, I also have the community of people who are interested in sharing their ideas because you can't really build. I mean, the reason I started advances was 
you know, frankly, and yes, I've been in the graphics industry for over two decades. And those of us who tried to do, you know, started out in games back then know that if you wanted to implement skinning, you didn't go online and look up the algorithm or find a shader to a shader, right? Like there was nothing, there were no resources for how do you do that. And in many ways, the goal for real time um, for, for the advances course was to really foster that community of innovative thinking that is focused on sharing and building the knowledge in the community at large. And I'm grateful that so many people took that call Right? The speakers that have been extraordinarily open about you know, their implementation details, their specific sort of special sauce, uh, we could have had a different outcome. And only through their openness and support of SIGGRAPH, we were able to build that knowledge base. Yeah, this is fantastic. So you're going to be back in 2022? Indeed, we have a pretty good uh, you know, set of speakers already signed up. And in fact, some folks from your company, from our company, from um, uh, NVIDIA and many others are excited to speak. And uh, we're hoping to capture a lot of the innovation that's coming in the next you know, six months as well. It's going to be different. I don't know what the format will be. Will it, will it be virtual? Will it be in person? Of course, we miss the live community of humans, you know, meeting up. Uh, but while we were in a virtual world, you know, in the pandemic, the SIGGRAPH community actually, the, the I should say, advances community managed to build quite a good set of discussions on Discord and otherwise. And I think that's something we want to lean into more, right? Because it invites more people to participate in that. And so, in fact, one of the things that we've started last year that we're going to, um, you know, move forward is... Um, to create an open conference on real-time uh, rendering, oh, sorry, on rendering engine architecture, um, we are uh, co-organizing that kind of moving the course that we put forward last year, and make it accessible to all, so that people can participate in a lot of the innovations that are coming from the world uh, of both real-time and non-real-time rendering engine. And what we aim to do is to focus on um, really building the shared understanding. What were the design choices? how people approach the problem rather than specific solutions. What were they evaluating when they were thinking a particular, let's say, um, architecture design or algorithm so that many can also learn, you know, roads not taking are just as important as roads that you do walk on. And often they're not talked about, right? And that might help somebody else's journey. And so we're hoping to make that a really thriving conversation as well. So that will be around, I think, June this year. Okay. Well, thank you, thank you for all of, for all those years of, uh, of support. And if you need help, let us know. We can always happy to help. Uh, good good causes. Um, so, uh, movies and games. I mean, you, so you mentioned uh, uh, you, you mentioned the Weta acquisition, and I think it's on top of everybody's mind. You know about uh, you know, and we're we're all familiar with kind of you know in, insane quality that Weta would get out of the Manuka renderer, and at the same time, you know. Having that team now be part of a, a real-time company is, is an interesting endeavor. So, so how far are we from these conversions, these uh, filming games, and the ability to create a metaverse that looks like whatever we want, photoreal or not? It's interesting that you ask that. I think the convergence, in some ways, is here. I mean, we see a lot of experiences that are um, really straddling the line between linear stories and interactive stories. And I mean, this varies across the board from projects created in Unity. You know, you've seen some of the uh, recent examples with Neil Blomkamp and others. You guys have put out this amazing Matrix experience. But we've also seen truly fantastic stories like, for example, Angelica from Pixar. There, there's a lot that's happening that takes advantage of um, 
both the interactivity, but also the um, you know the capability of the hardware to create these stories. So I think I wouldn't say that the convergence is in the future. I think the interesting conversation is what is actually needed to enable to create more stories, right? I mean, ultimately, we the way that, the way that we've looked at Weta is, of course, that is the tip of the spear, literally, of what's possible to do with computer graphics today. But a large part of it is um, it allows you to create in sort of the stable, guaranteed-to-work environment when the simulation of Loki, which is the simulation tool, runs you know that you're not going to be thrown off because some part of the simulation, you know, let's say the cloth will freak out because you sat on a chair, right? It is so um, well designed and carefully constructed that you actually will have a guarantee that your simulations will work. When the hair will go into the water, right? Like you saw in Alita, there's a big part that actually in many other cases, you have to code all these special, especially in games, right? You have to code all these special, you know, edge cases of like, if so, I remember on Destiny, we had cloth, right? And then we had to code all these millions of use cases. If you grab the weapon from the back of your backpack, do this. If the, you know, if the character was shut down and we were saving the ragdoll bodies to save them, then do something else. All these if edge cases end up costing you um, effectively our iteration time. Because when you look at, at the point of story creator, they need to think, hey, how will my story move forward? But they also need to think, hey, wait a second, is my cloth going to freak out? Is my, I don't know, armor going to glow because I walked into a corner, right? And suddenly you have slightly wrong lighting that previously we didn't account for. So one of the powers that we will be, um, you know, working together to converge in real time is to bring that guaranteed stability, that pipeline that just works, right, from this very sophisticated tooling, from the deep understanding of physics and optics into the creator's hands, the millions of people who are doing this on variety of um, hardware and variety of, um, you know, platforms. And it's a hard problem, but it's also something that we can start bringing out today. I mean, you can create, you know, hair, for example, and start bringing them with Weta tools, you know, barbershop, and start bringing them into games. So it's about creating a set of um, sort of milestones that we can start sharing more and more and more. At the same time, we're going to keep pushing what the pinnacle is, what the tip of the sphere, you know, spear is. And so when I think about convergence, to me, this is about solving the, the content creator iteration time. And if you look at Weta too, they're equally interested in the real-time technologies because in the end, to them, creator's flow, creator's iteration time is a critical part of success, right? Not just purely like it costs cheaper to produce because it's not just about that. Those in games and those in movies know that the more you can iterate on the final look, the final experience, the faster you will feel that you've arrived at the story that you want to tell. And in the end, it's all about the stories, right? And so they're just as interested to bring in a lot of the elements that we bring from our side to, you know, from the real-time domain into their pipeline to see what can go faster, right? Where we can save a lot of the time on the compute wall and move it into the real-time space. We've seen a lot of the innovation happening in the virtual productions from animation, uh, from uh, Pipeline, for example, Ziva Dynamics is a huge force on making character creation become a significantly streamlined um, experience through the machine learning elements by making it effectively, for example, you could take Ziva or a T-Play um, trainer, plug it as a 
effectively a defamation mode in Maya. And everybody who's animating, not even people who are targeting the real time, they get feedback in real time. How much more powerful that iteration loop becomes because you're now thinking not just about creating the frames, but you're thinking about creating a faster loop to get the story to the evaluation point. And that's what we're focusing on. And then of course, the other part is with Weta. These are amazing tools. But if we look at margins of computer films, they're extraordinarily painful. So many houses aren't able to tell the stories that they want to tell, right? Like we see this enormous proliferation of blockbusters and I enjoy them, right? Like I just watched one this weekend, it's awesome. I love the spectacle, I want more of them. But at the same time, they're all these stories that we never get to hear because people simply didn't have money to produce them, right? Like it's a very basic question. You weren't funded, right? And one of the things that is near and dear to my heart and why I'm in Unity is because we're really focused on letting these stories be told, right? Like one example is um, just recently I was looking at um, a company that is helping neurodivergent and um, also helping some of the indigenous tribes in Siberia to create a preservation of their stories using AR, right? And in a way, it's a different type of funding for films, for stories, because, you know, it was funny because when I was watching their presentation, I'm originally from Siberia, Ural Mountains, right? And so it was actually really, really uh, crazy, like brought tears to my eyes because I saw the stories that my grandmother would say, right? In this AR experience. And they didn't have any money, right? It was a very poorly funded project, but they had all the tools that they needed in order to create that. And so the point that I'm making about what is how much more powerful will the stories that we will be seeing in the world if we bring that to millions of creators, if we make it inexpensive for them to participate or free. And I'm, I have a young daughter. I'm super excited for her to see these stories because it's not just about the one experience that can get funded because it's low risk. It's also about the myriads of other stories that may be extraordinarily risky to say, or maybe they're just not as widely interesting, or maybe they're, you know, a small unproven team. And I think that's something that we can enable. And I think that's the conversion that real time really can bring to the party, because we're going to make it cheaper to produce stories. We're going to make faster feedback so people can iterate on the stories. And I know that's what, you know, other companies in the field are also eager to do. So the more we all band together to enable this, the more we'll see this proliferate throughout the world. And the more I'm excited to see in that world where we'll have that. 100% agree on that, you know, soft images to say that productivity is creativity with another name. I mean, the more, the more the quality of a creative product is just the more iteration you put into it. So in real time really helps. So you, you mentioned bringing tools to millions of people. So what is it going to take to actually have, you know, content creation tools that are usable by the masses. Where do you think are the gaps or, or the, the, the trajectories that we could, we need to explore? Well, there's a couple things that we are focusing on. So of course, it's for, some of it is about releasing the specific tools, right? So on our, on our docket, you know, you mentioned Manuka, you, you know, Barbershop, you take a whole bunch, they're all on Unity website. They're amazing at creating specific best in class solutions for, you know, like let's say if I wanted to create amazing uh, forests like Pandora's, you know, in, in Avatar, Lumberjack, Tatara, they're, they're basically the way that I can approach them. But even beyond that, if you look at what it takes to create, so much goes into orchestration of, um, you know, 
IT aspects. My source control, which version is published of the content? How am I getting this particular file go to this other program? You know, you mentioned Softimage. How do I get this Maya Maya? Or is some part of my team in Blender, right? Do I have a bunch of people sitting in Houdini? Some of them are using Substance. Some of them are using Unity. Some of them may use Unreal. Some of them may use a custom, um, custom engine. Much of what we need to focus, and this is a call to action, you know, um, to many. And in fact, I want to call out to, um, you know, fantastic presentation by Kim Library in the previous, uh, you know, meet, um, podcast that you guys had. He said something about the, um, hey, what can two engines do together? And I have a couple of examples, but I also want to say this. And actually, Ralph Koster uh, recently had this presentation on Metaverse that really stood out to me. It was extraordinarily eloquent. But fundamentally, there's no data portability without standards, and standards are a social coordination problem. I thought it was so well put. So, back to Kim Library. What I think we should do, the true power of the two gorillas, so to say, of, of the third-party engines, there are so many scenarios that require us to work together to create these standards of data. And when we look at um, the world of creations, you mentioned tools, what will it take to get to millions of people? I look at the journey of 2D images, right? And the standardization that happened because we were able to take a GIF and copy it, right? Like Apple did this amazing work so that I can copy a GIF, paste it to text, and I could copy a, a JPEG and paste it to my email. And it became something that most people who are not the professional, deep, uh, deeply knowledgeable professional creators that know all the ins and outs of, you know, OBJs and everything else, they don't think about it. This format became ubiquitous. So my ask, what we can do with two engines is let's come up with a proper standard for real-time 3D data format. It doesn't exist right now, right? When we look at the larger long-term um, perspective of content creation to enable creators to do this with ease, we actually need to make real-time content to become first-class citizen in digital world and in the OSs, and that's nowhere near right now. We have USD, it's starting to get a lot of traction. I know we are investing very heavily into that format and Guida talked in your format um, podcast about the power that that format brings. It's super exciting, but it's fantastic at describing static assets, right? So how do we think about not just the complexity of creation, what will it take for me to author that hair, right? So great, barbershop, I can go and I create the you know, curlets and so forth. But how do I make this groom and everybody can grab it and send it over between different platforms, between di even just different tools right now, it's a nightmare scenario. And by enabling these robust interchange programs, right, by working together with Kim, with others, with you know Guido, et cetera, we actually can create a fully interchangeable real-time 3D format. And that needs to pack dynamics, that needs to pack proceduralism, that needs to pack rigging, that needs to pack animation curve, that needs, and, and I know like right now, whoever is listening to it from USD world is like, oh, you're insane, this is so hard. Nobody's been able to standardize an animation curves alone, that is horrible. Um, Ralph uh, made that joke in his um, you know presentation about how two engines can't agree on which axis is up, right? Animation curve, how much worse is that? But without that, even if we create enormously incredible tools, we still have the limitation the real-time 3D, and, and this is a huge limitation, in my opinion, that we need to solve together for the metaverse. And by the way, I view metaverse as creativeverse, because to me, 
this live complex ecosystem is about people creating collaboratively, people creating together, people creating with trust that their creation will be durable, that it will be attributed to them, that it will be something they can, you know, share with the world, but also profit safely from, right? And we can't get there if the data is not a first-class citizen. And so that's that's the biggest thing I think that we need to work as a whole industry because we're pretty far from that for real-time 3D. Yeah, no, I agree. And Patrick, Patrick and I, I think, are in violent agreement. And uh, our approach has been, you know, to, to try to, to converge two important trends. You mentioned USD. USD is an open source library. Uh, and and then the other aspect is we have GLTF, which is an open standard uh, managed by the cross organization. And we had a conversation with Neil the other day about it. So, and how do we, and actually Vladimir uh, Vukicevich from Unity, Vlad actually had, you know, the, a great approach to try to go incrementally towards that, you know, like adding properties. And, and he made the point of experimenting into the open so that we advance the whole industry and Back to SIGGRAPH, so Patrick and I are trying to, to, to create something at SIGGRAPH around the open metaverse about, you know, charting the way. I think, you know, exchanging digital characters is probably a decade-long project, uh, you know, and characters are always come with a stigma. So we're talking about cars, something that people get around and, you know, what would it take to exchange drivable car, you know, to drive a car from Unreal to Unity and working with Neil and the GLTF team and a bunch of other teams, we're trying to like unpeel that onion and say, what is it going to take to say like a rig? Okay, now we need to rig a suspension. Can we can we at least exchange that and try to have a very pragmatic, incremental, with a lot of small wins along the way so that crawl, walk, you know, crawl, walk, run, fly. Uh, I think it'll take, you know, I look at it as a 10 year long engagement to try to drive that interoperability and hopefully we get to take the first steps in 2022. So we'll, we'll, we'll work We'll call you up on that, uh, Natalia, and, uh, and 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 work on that. So it's an interesting segue because it's like uh, you know, so this metaverse thing is happening. It's it's a lot of hype right now, but we know we we know when you've been in the graphics industry that he has, he will happen. So what what's the role of the SIGGRAPH uh, organization in, in you know in potentially being a force for the open metaverse? What do you think is uh, the, the potential of SIGGRAPH and what we should be doing there as a community. I hope it's crucial. Um, as you mentioned, right, SIGGRAPH has been around for quite a while. And I think there's, um, well, funny, I remember going to SIGGRAPH when CAVE, right, like the, the original sort of the super OG, very closed format, by the way, right, like very opposite of what we're talking about, was a thing. And, and you know, they had presentations about it. but. At that point, SIGGRAPH was the, you know, and, and still now, SIGGRAPH is the place where a lot of the uh, innovations of thought leaderships are introduced, but then also shared to a really wide audience. And I think the ability of SIGGRAPH to reach and cross so many different manufacturers, so many different companies, big and small, by the way, because I think this really needs to be, you know, Vlad wasn't a company when he was driving his format, right? You guys are driving them. We will be a part of it. We're big companies, et cetera. But it's about combining these diverse points of view and creators. And SIGGRAPH gives you a platform to do that, not only to structure the conversation, but also then to expand them out to a larger set of people who can follow it. And because SIGGRAPH has all these decades right, of conversations built in, it also creates trust. 
And I think one of the most important things that it can do is create space so that these conversations are nurtured, right? So they're invited, so that they're thriving, and then broadcast them wider. So in other words, open up, you know, like, and I'm going to call this out as a challenge to SIGGRAPH, open up the ACMDL, right, the digital library. Make these conversations, they, they should happen on YouTube. Make it wide open so we can crack the walls. Because combining the immense trust, right, immense knowledge base that SIGGRAPH has from the pioneers of, you know, cave to the now, with the bleeding edge combined with the knowledge of the past, that is a unique advantage. But bring this conversation to a much larger audience. That's the responsibility and the opportunity. Yeah, and building an, an online arm like we've been doing on Discord uh, in SIGGRAPH 2021, you know, is a way to reach out to more people, create a more permanent conversation and not this once a year. So I agree that, you know, there's a lot of opportunities and a bit of challenges because to, to you know, to transform an organization is always, uh, is always difficult. Well, it's a responsibility that I really wish, uh, you know, again, a lot of it is about sustainability of the organization, but I think there's a lot to be said about the, the organization itself has a responsibility, right? And I think that that's what I'm hoping to encourage that, that they, um, and I know they care about thriving computer graphics, but, um, and thriving fields related to that, right? Like in many ways, when you look at your car, uh, example, so much goes in that isn't just at all about, you know, the elements that are traditionally SIGGRAPH that are part of, to making, you know, to make the story. I mean, for the love of God, you'll need, I still remember being on a jury of SIGGRAPH general program and the set of papers came in on TCPIP protocols. And I remember raising an eyebrow, I, you know, at that time I didn't really know the relevance. I was like, what does this have to do with SIGGRAPH? And some of the incredibly smart folks from the film industry, which at the time I was still learning about, were like, well, this is a critical part of what it takes to make a movie. If you don't have an effective scheduling mechanism on the network, you'll fail. So to the point of let's bring together all of the re relevant related fields and then bring it out to a larger conversation. That's what SIGGRAPH can do. Yeah, I agree. There's a leadership potential right there. And so... So, so you and I work in a commercial game engine company. What is your take on the role of an open source game engine like O3D and, uh, and Godot? You know, we had Juan and Royal talk on this podcast a few episodes ago. So how do you, how do you approach this at Unity? Uh, we we'll absolutely support it. I mean, you see Vlad uh, as a part of the conversation. We are absolutely focused on creating a lot of the open source technology we've done that over the years and a lot of, in fact, most of the graphics work that we do, um, if you look at Scriptable Render Pipeline, it's all developed fully in the open, right? Like on GitHub, you can see all the PRs. What it does, it, it, you know, there's a couple of elements that are, um, I think, super important for the industry at large. One, it opens up an opportunity to participate, right? For people who may not be, um, you know, like even able to afford it. Uh, even subscription fees or revenue sharing, right, might be a detriment to some of the folks who are interested in that. But they have an opinion and they might want to express that opinion. So that's a huge part of um, enabling open source. On the other part of the equation, and you know this as well as I, there are many um, early platforms, many other elements that are not going to enter into the domain of open source because the respective platform holders have their position on how to treat their intellectual property or even just to when to introduce that intellectual property to the world, right? And we have to be respectful of that too. So I think 
I love the idea of having safe playgrounds. Godot, Blender, uh, a lot of the innovations have been happening in this space because so many people can participate in that. So I love the idea of enabling that. This is the place where we can also evolve, you know, back to that point of social contract for standard creation. A lot of it is happening in open, uh, open software because it's a really easy place to express your point of view without any of the complexity that comes with, you know, my position, in, in, let's say, for a particular standard comes with even as simple as will I have money to attend the consortium, right? Like if you look at Vulcan and some of the others, like, I mean, pragmatically speaking, you need to have ability to participate in those consortiums. And some of that comes with fees. And it's not a negative statement. Open um, software doesn't require that. That's where we see some interesting evolution, some interesting experimentation. It gives opportunity for people to grab and, and change it to their needs as, as they desire. Um, but I personally believe that there is a space for both. There's a lot of value from third-party engines that provide support, that provide the stability, that will go in a different direction, um, you know, necessarily in terms of reliability that some of the open source might give you. And that's also important to provide because when we're talking about a company that puts effectively life, uh, you know, support for many a thousand people on the line for a particular project, they need to know that they can rely on that project to be thriving. Um, so there are different perspectives that are worthwhile to consider. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, combining the, you know, the, the power open standards and the, and the you know, and the, I like, I like what you, you know, your reference as a social contract so it takes a lot of people and then you know open source which is a place to also innovate and experiment in the open and to share the you know the, the specific positions and in unity we do quite a lot of it i mean in the end this is a super critical part of how we enable people to tell more stories how we enable more creators because we're you know by creating an open system it's not just about open source too and i mean you you you've seen this enormous strife that is happening right now because of the walled gardens and in fact i would say the most negative uh thread in the metaverse conversation has been around the subject of will it be a walled garden will it be a one system that you know a lot of other people don't participate in and no matter what the opinion is about creator versus metaverse the one thing that i love about your podcast is that actually the open part right the fact that the critical part of emerging for the metaverse is actually to help it to be open, to be not driven by one company or one platform or one API, that there's hundreds and thousands and millions of destinations in that space. And that comes in primarily because of open standards, open participation, right? Like you need to be able to plug in <clears throat> your data to your point about the car, right? Back to the, the scenario from Kim, what can I think as an example of, you know, uh, the two engines doing together? Uh, super simple, right? Like, I mean, even just if we want to create uh, a concert, right? Like a UFC fight with, you know, like some of the stuff that Peter Moore is doing with Metacast at Unity. Hey, what would it take to have a Fortnite character show up at that UFC meta, you know, UFC fight or a concert, right? How would we enable that together? I think this is a super interesting thing for us to, to really band together so that my player identity, I created this character in Destiny and I can take it with me everywhere else because I've invested a ton of time into that character. I love it, right? How do we make these open standards become the, the effectively the springboard for enabling the openness of that creator platform? You know, because I'm a geek, I'm a 
and an optimist geek. I think we'll figure out the technical problems. I worry more about finding a, a business model where, and that's the challenge this new creator economy. If you take a Destiny character into Fortnite or into another game, you know how do you how you share? How does a creator you know get a fair share of their creation? And how do we create an economical model where, you know, we, so. I think that business challenge. I think that's actually one of the hardest things that we will have to solve. I agree with you. Whatever I think about USD extension or whatever the new format for real-time 3D, it won't be instantaneous, but we will solve it. We have so many smart people at this problem. I'm the least smart person in that conversation, right? And it's amazing. But making the creator participate in future uh, revenues from downstream usage of their you know, when I think about song industry, I recently had a conversation about, you know, music industry and real-time 3D, right? Piracy aside, when we look at, you know, there's this thriving royalty-free uh, world of music and great, I can use any song, I can do whatever I want with it, it's explicitly given to me as that. If I am a DJ or I am a composer and I mix any song, right, there is an actual system for tracking how the royalty from that song goes through. I was recently looking at Madonna's Ray of Light, and it turns out that it was based on a 70s song from a very obscure musician, but she paid him a very hefty revenue based on his creation. Nobody even remembered, likely, the musician from that particular uh, song, but his creation was able to create a living for his descendants, for example, because of the implicit agreement for how to deal with conventions of copyright. That's one of the biggest things that we need to solve. And that's hard. That's not trivial for... And if, you, if I can volunteer an opinion as a host here, it does happen once in a while. Is For me, one thing that's important is the way you implement this is smart contracts. Okay, And there's multiple ways to implement smart contracts. You don't have to adhere to the fully decentralized model of blockchain technology. I mean, there's a lot of ways you implement distributed database. You can... You know, we have a banking system, you know, they can reconcile transactions, you know, so it, it I, I want to call it, it does not equate a full embracement of that blockchain craziness that we're seeing. There's multiple ways to solve this problem, uh, blockchain being one of them with certain set of characteristics, but there will be others. But I do believe that, yeah, we do need that, that traceability of the content so that we can implement fair business model in the creator economy. That's going to be probably one of the biggest problems we have to solve. Well, and a big part of it, if we go back to the technology, so one, of course, we shouldn't pick the most complicated solution. We should pick the most doable solution. Step one, let creators participate in the profits, right? Like with the simplest choice possible. Two, and this is a technical solution, back to that durable portable data format. So one, that needs to happen because to take the data from one place to another, we need to have durable portable data format. Two, not only we have to have durable portable data format, but we need to have a durable data format that allows us to recognize variations from that format. And I think that's another critical part that's quite difficult. Like if you look at the journey, even just if you take a single production that ships, you know, whether it is Weta shipping multiple versions of Avatar, right, like sequels, whether it is a game that ships different seasons or different DLCs, the effort that's involved in taking one set, um, set of content and then pushing it through to subsequent generation and giving attribution on that variation, right now, these enormous content management systems go into place in order to be able to just simply track attribution, right? IP management and all of the um, elements. Like recently, I was talking to a, you know, a fellow colleague of mine who was the original creator of Gollum, Bayrate, and he talked about how much the content that he's created has moved on to all these other 
uh, subsequent production, but there's no way for him to participate in the results or even know that they were used. I mean, sometimes it's not just about money. It's about the joy of creation and knowing how much it sparked in the world beyond that. But you, to your point, to make it thriving, we need to make ability for people to uh, benefit from it. Yeah, fascinating, um, Natalia. So um, we, 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 we will wrap up uh, with our two traditional questions. The first question is, um, is there a topic that's very near and dear to your heart that we should have covered today? Or we would want to cover in subsequent conversations? I think the main thing that right now I'm spending a lot of my cycles thinking about, how do we author in such a way that allows us to get the scalability of content? There are a lot of conversations, of course, there's tons of papers on LOD, simplification, but that's a really complicated topic and I would love to spend more time thinking, you know, and, and banding together on ideas of that. That's something that we are focused so heavily to solve with Unity and I'm not saying this in any marketoid way, but because ultimately when we come to the, when the creators come to us saying, Hey, I want to do, you know, the following story, they want to be able to reach the audience without having to lock that audience into a specific hardware model, right? Only PlayStation people can do it or only hard, you know, Xbox people, only people with, you know, high end Samsung phones or Xiaomi or whatever else. And they don't want to, the complexity of reauthoring it is so painful. So how do we do that, I think, is a really interesting thing that, that I'm spending a lot of brain cycle with my team and with myself, and that's what we're setting out to solve. Because back to that creator-verse, we need to be able to create durable content. Durable content means that it's scalable content. Absolutely. Content that will stand the test of time. A holy grail, admittedly, but back to the same subject as you know the, the, um, the matter of attribution. There are certainly steps that we can take along that journey. Yeah, no, you're right. We've been we've been living in the era of throwable content for like the past 25 years, right? And I think that's going to be one of the big differences moving forward. Uh, another last question is: Is there a person or an organization that you want to give a shout out to today in the context of that open metaverse conversation? I would love to give shout out to um, the Dreams team from Media Molecule and to Alex Evans because they've done something so incredibly unique and amazing with user-generated content with the ability to tell stories in a completely different ways and very advanced approaches to how to author content. I would love for him to come talk, uh, you know, how he's thinking evolution of user-generated content would be how machine learning can help with ability to create content faster. I mean, they've done this amazing recent work on, uh, you know, neural rendering and uh, training that's, you know, in seconds or less than. How will that change the world of content creation? That would be my dream for the next podcast, if I could. Yeah, that's a fantastic idea. Um, I feel we should have, we should, yeah, it's a fantastic idea. Thank you so much, Natalia. And uh, so... You know, thank you for, for this conversation. It's been it's been a fantastic moment. I'm sure people will, will enjoy this conversation. I'll maybe we should try to have dinner with Kim at, in Vancouver. Uh at Cigraph 2022. Hopefully we get to meet uh, in person and uh, we can advance the conversation on terribly. We should not wait for Vancouver, but at least we should we should plan to meet in person in Vancouver. I think uh it would be great. And again, thank you for your time today. Uh Thank you for all your contribution to the community uh, and uh, very, very insightful thoughts. So we're super happy to have you here. 
Thank you kindly and count me in. Yeah, so on behalf of Patrick, uh, who was with, there with us in spirit today, again, thank you so much. Thank you, everybody, uh, for listening to the podcast where the pickup is good, the feedback is really good, and, uh, you know, it's because we get, we're lucky that the right guest uh, agreed to come and talk to us like Natalia did today. So thank you, everybody. Uh, let us know on social how you feel and the questions and the feedback. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.